Okay. So now with that, now you all know what happened. You know, after preaching 28 times in 12 days um, and a 35 hour trip back, um, I'm almost recovered from jet lag. I'm uh, almost sleeping good um, through the night. And so I'm almost back to normal. And as you will see, I'm pretty much back to normal when it comes to preaching. So open your Bibles to Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 10, verses 21 through 24, which is really our anchor text for a series where now it's kind of a topical series, but it's based on this text. Um, and it is God's sovereignty and your salvation. And this morning we're going to be looking at the external barriers between men and their salvation as we come back to the text if i'm sorry i was gone those weeks three weeks in south africa but um as we come back to the text this morning uh i just want to encourage you if you are not here for the other three messages leading up to this one on the sovereignty of god and salvation it would be very helpful if you listen to those messages because the message this morning and the other previous messages are what are going to help us understand what we're going to talk about next week and the weeks after. And if you don't understand, if you didn't hear that, then you're going to have all these questions and you're going to come up to me and then I'm going to say, did you listen to the other message? You're going to say no and I'm going to go tell you to do that. So just make sure you listen to those because it will really bring a lot of clarity to what we are going to be learning. We've covered um, in so far the, that, that God saves men, is sovereign over men's salvation. Now, we've learned that, we've seen it in the text, and we're going to read the text here in a minute, and we'll see how it is again. But as you look at that, it, it is good to stop sometimes when, when the Bible addresses something, and not just address what is in the text, but all those related doctrines to what is in the text, so that you can understand what is there. And this is especially true when you're talking about God's sovereignty and salvation and predestination and foreknowledge and election and how the will of man fits into that and all of these things which are really complex. They're really hard to understand if you just look at them in an isolated way. But though they are complex um, and baffling to some, they're well within the, the reach of your average Bible students if you just listen and just look at what we're looking at, then it becomes quite clear. It's amazingly so. I love to get to the part um, where we start talking about the really complex things when I teach people slowly because it's like, oh yeah, well that has to be that way. It becomes very obvious. But if you don't go there, you're just thinking, I don't understand. And so what we're doing in our first three messages is we looked at the doctrine of man and sin. We learned that men were created in the image of God, perfect, but that they fell into sin. We talked about the image of God being two things that men have some of the same characteristics and attributes of God and men were created to rule over the earth just like God rules over heaven and earth so they have some of the same characteristics or attributes and functions we also learned that all men are sinners and all men are in need of salvation we learned that all men are totally depraved which doesn't mean they are as sinful as they can be or that every person sins as much as they could what it does mean is that sin has affected every part of man's being there is no part of our being whether it be our heart or mind or emotions or body that has not been affected or corrupted by sin that's what total depravity means and we learn that because men are sinners because they are totally depraved it affects men's mind 
It affects their conscience, their heart, their attitude towards God and the things of God. And so we went to great lengths to explain all of this. And if you're wondering why are we, we going into such great pains, it's because you can't understand God's sovereignty and salvation if you don't understand these things. And so let's just look at the text where we will see God's sovereignty and salvation and then still talk about some of those related issues to the the grand thing in the text before us, which we will get to in several weeks. So look at Luke chapter 10 and follow along as I verse, read verses 21 through 24. If you don't have a Bible, you can probably find one in the pew or the queue behind you, in front of you, whatever. Um, there should be a Bible nearby. At that very time, he, that is Jesus... Rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see these things you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wished to see the things which you see and did not see them and hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. Now, if you remember the context, Jesus has sent the 70 out to kind of do some pre-evangelism in these cities where he's going to come. He's given them the power to heal people and cast out demons and to preach the gospel. So they've gone on this kind of evangelistic, you know, healing, demon casting out crusade. And they've come back. And what they're really excited about is not that people got saved, not that they preached the gospel, but that the demons were subject to them. And they tell Jesus that. And then he tells them, don't be excited about that. Be excited that your names are recorded in heaven. And then he, in exemplary fashion, gives them an example of what he's talking about. And that is what our text says. At that time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father. But when Jesus begins to praise the Father, he praises the Father for some interesting things. I praise you that you have hidden the truth from some people so they can't be saved. And that you have revealed it to others so they can. He says this way was well pleasing in your sight. And by the way, no one knows the son but the father. No one knows the father but the son and anyone to whom the son wills to reveal him. And so you see in that text a very clear statement that God is absolutely sovereign and who gets saved but of course this then brings a whole bunch of questions to mind which torment a lot of people's souls why would god hide the truth from some people and not others why would he do that why wouldn't god reveal the truth equally to all men if people need god to reveal the truth to them in order to be saved and god keeps the truth from them then how can god judge them for not coming to salvation if the only way they can is if god gives them the truth if god saves all he desires to save and god is not willing that any should perish then why aren't all saved and if he does save all he desires to save then why prayer witness See, these are questions people have. You know, how can that be fair? How can that be just? What about man's will? What about man's choice? And all of these questions then come to mind when you read a text that says, 
I praise you, Father, for you have hidden the truth from some and revealed it to others. Hmm. How can that be? And that's what we are going to find out. But as we have already looked at men and sin and total depravity, there is one more thing that I want to look at this morning, which we're going to get into in a minute. And I just want to review quickly what we have already said, because you need to get this all kind of mounted up in your mind. We learned from, and I'm not going to quote all the text, but in John chapter 3, verses uh, 19 and 20, where it says there that the wicked do not come to the light. Remember that? Lest their deeds should be exposed. They don't want to come to the light because they don't want to come to the truth or Christ because they know they're doing evil and they don't want their evil deeds exposed. We learn from Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 8, that those who are in the flesh, those who don't know Christ, are hostile to God. They don't subject themselves to the law of God. Paul says, for they're not even able to do so, and they can't please God. We saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, that the natural man or unsaved man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. That is, he cannot understand the Word of God, because the Word of God can only be appraised if you have the Spirit of God within you. And since they are devoid of the Spirit, the text literally says that it is foolishness to them. The word foolish is moronic. They read the Bible and they think the Bible is moronic. And not only that, the text says it is not only moronic to them, but it is also... Uh, out of their reach in that the text reads that they do not have the power, the dunamis within them to even get a hold of the truth because it's spiritually appraised. So they can't even access it. In Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 19, we learned where Paul just gives that huge list of the problem of all mankind, whether Jew or Gentiles, and he says there are none righteous. No, not even one. There are none who understand. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There's none who seek God. And he makes it so clear that no one on their own ever seeks God, ever could understand God, ever would want to do what's right. They just don't want to. And so it leaves men in a very precarious position that they're just sinning, sinning, sinning. And if you think, well, you know, well, Why don't men just stop sitting then? Well, we read in Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 23, can the leopard change his spots or the Ethiopian, the color of his skin? Neither can you stop sinning who are accustomed of doing evil. Just can't do it. Can't do it. You're walking down the street. You're driving around in your car. You see people on the sidewalks. You see your neighbors, you see your friends, you see unbelievers in the world. Know this, those people are lost. They're lost. And even though you may not know them, you know a lot about them. You know that sin has affected every part of their being. They love darkness rather than light. They don't want to come to the light. They don't want to submit themselves to God. They don't want to worship Jesus. They don't want Jesus being in control of their whole life. They might give him some crumbs, give him a little bit on Sunday morning, but they don't want Jesus controlling them. They don't want God ruling their whole life they're willing to give him a portion maybe some of them 
And when you're thinking about that, you think, well, Jack, if this is true, then how does anyone get saved? I mean, if they don't love God, if they don't want to come to the truth of God, if they love sin instead, if they can't even understand the things of God, if they're spiritually dead, then how does anyone ever get saved? Well, that's what we're talking about, isn't it? And everything that we've covered up to this point could all be categorized under one category, and that is this. The internal barriers which keep men from coming to Christ. Those things inside your will, your thoughts, your emotions, which are all corrupted and distorted. The fact that you're void of the spirit, you love darkness rather than light. All of those things are things from within that keep people from coming to Christ. And this morning we want to talk about those things outside of the unbeliever, which hinders him from coming to Christ. Then when we understand both of these groups and put them together, then you begin to understand why God saves men the way he does. So this morning, I want to talk about three external barriers which keep men from coming to Christ, which must be overcome if they're ever going to be saved. And this is huge. I mean, this isn't just pie-in-the-sky theology. This is very practical for anyone who doesn't know Christ or anyone who knows somebody who doesn't know Christ, which is everybody. The first is Satan and demons hinder people from coming to Christ. The Bible teaches Satan is a murderer, that he's been a murderer from the beginning. And you know what? He doesn't really try and get people killed physically. That's not the big deal. He knows everybody's going to die physically if he just leaves them alone, doesn't he? Because, you know, the death rate is still at 100%. But what he wants people to do is die before they come to faith in Christ so that they die for all eternity and perish in hell. That's what he wants. Every unbeliever you know has Satan and demons working against them. Actually, the Bible speaks of Satan, but uh, it's Satan and all of his demons. Whenever his demons do anything, and we know there's a lot of them from the scriptures, we covered that a while back. Whenever demons do anything, it's attributed to Satan because he is their ruler. And what you need to realize is that when someone doesn't know Christ, Satan is working to keep them from knowing Christ. It may be your husband, it may be your wife, your daughter, your neighbor, your coworker. You know, whoever, the cashier at the grocery store. It doesn't matter who it is. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you've never been born again and transformed, Satan is playing you big time. Now, to see this, let's look at a few texts. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And again, I'm just going to give you a couple sample texts for each of these categories. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Here Paul is explaining to the Corinthians uh, that he proclaimed the truth and he did it in an unadulterated way. And he says this in verses 3 and 4 of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, just think about that. This phrase here, the God of this world, is just another reference to Satan. He is the God or the ruler of the one who is behind this evil world system. 
And it says here that the gospel is veiled to them. It's like it's covering their eyes. It says he has blinded them. The word blinded literally means to be smoked up. That is, you know, you you fill a room so much with smoke that people can, can't see. We say, you know, somebody's in a fog. And what do we mean by that? They, just, they don't understand. They're clueless. They can't, you know, get their mind on it or whatever. They're just in a fog. So Satan labors to keep people in a fog, in a thick, dense smoke screen of lies and deceptions. So they can't see the gospel for what it really is. And they think, oh, pff, big deal. Jesus is a crutch. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. This is a text which is familiar to many of us. Over to the right, a couple books. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Paul's explaining why the Ephesians and all men need saved and what unbelievers are like before coming to Christ. He's speaking to the Ephesians about what they were like before coming to Christ and then includes himself. He says this, starting in verse 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And just stop there. You go to the morgue. You open up, you know, the cooler. You pull someone out who's dead. They don't respond physically, do they? In any way. You can't say, put her there. You can't go up to their toe and tickle them. You can't say, blink twitch, breathe, nod. They can't do anything physically because they are physically dead. Paul says all unbelievers are spiritually dead here is what he's talking about. So that they cannot respond in any way spiritually. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, another designation for Satan of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Paul says they were walking dead men. They were spiritual zombies. You know, I remember growing up, you know, there'd be monster movies and, you know, they'd have the zombies, you know, popping out of the grave all half rotten, you know, chasing emotionally terrorized women, you know, who are screaming. I don't know what somebody like that does, you know. I mean, what can a zombie do to you? They're already half rotten. You know, there's not much there. Um, they just, they're good at scaring a, a emotionally fragile woman, I guess. But anyways, um, the uh, zombies like that are fictions. They're just nothing more than fictions invented by the twisted minds of men. Physically dead people, half rotten people, don't get up out of the grave and walk around. It just doesn't happen. However, there are such things as spiritual zombies. As a matter of fact, there are billions in the world. Anybody who doesn't know Christ is a spiritual zombie. Spiritually dead, physically walking. That's what they are. And that is why Paul says, you were dead at the beginning of verse 1, and then in the beginning of verse 2, in which you formerly walked. Walking, dead people. And notice Paul says that spiritual zombies walk according to the course of this world, which means they live in rebellion against God. Look at the middle of verse 2. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Here is the ruler of the world, another designation for Satan, the prince of the power of the air. Satan doesn't mean everybody's possessed, but the, the Greek prepositions are very precise. And when it says he's working in, it doesn't mean he's working around or working about or working over or working under. It means he's working in them. It means exactly what it says to be within them. And so Satan works 
in unbelievers to do his will, which is rebel against God and his word. And don't think we're talking about isolated instances here. Paul is speaking to the Ephesians about what they were all like and even includes himself. If you look at verse three, among them, we too all Jews lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and the mind and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Jew, Gentile, it doesn't matter if a person doesn't know Christ. They are dead in sins and Satan is working in them to do his will. They're spiritual zombies. You look at that nicely dressed man, you know, on the corner in his business suit or that nicely dressed woman. You see that, that, you know, unbelieving college student typing on his computer at the coffee shop. You see that person driving around next to you on the freeway who doesn't know Christ. It doesn't matter who it is. Satan's working in them. He's working in all of them and they don't know it. They actually think most of them that Satan doesn't even exist. They're so deluded They don't even realize that they have this influence pervading their life. They actually think they're in control of their own life. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Another very interesting text as Paul is talking to Timothy just about those who are going to oppose his ministry and how to respond to them. But he makes some interesting um, statements. He says, you know, don't be quarrelsome in verse 24, but be kind and patient when wrong. And then he says this in verses 25 and 26 of second Timothy two with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. So these people are opposing if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses, having escaped the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will here. Paul mentions two things that satan does he he says that they might escape the snare of the devil a snare is a is a noose with a, a trigger and a bait snake you take the bait stick and you know off you go you're you're hanging upside down you're snared and he says some people have been snared captured by satan's lies his deceptions his temptations They're blinded from the truth. They will not submit to their creator. Satan has them hanging by their ankles, dangling over the mouth of hell. And they don't even know it. And they don't even care that they don't know it. Secondly, Paul describes them as held captive by Satan to do his will, which is very interesting. I was... As I was going this, I was thinking when when I was in Africa and we went to this this, um, lion portion park thing um where they have all these lions and in this particular park they have lions which they use for filming and so they're kind of the guy says you don't you can't really ever train a lion um you know you just kind of teach them certain things and you keep your your eye on them (laughs) um and so he said we're going to go in the park now these we've 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 um you know, use these for movies. The really bad ones we keep fenced in a fenced area, and we'll see those at the end. Um, they they either won't get trained, or we're trying to train them to not eat us. And uh, <laughs> so we're in this truck. Now we're in this truck, and it's got a pretty high bed and some rails on it. But basically, we're we're probably about five feet above the ground in this truck with no windows. Okay, so you could like put your hand out there and troll for a lion. Um, <laughs> And so we get to this fenced area and there's about a 10 foot high fence with electric fence on it. And then he opens up and drives through and then closes the gate behind us, opens the other gate, drives through and then closes that behind us. 
And then we drive amongst the lions and they're big. A 500 pound lion is pretty serious looking. And even when they purr, it's scary. Um, they have such a deep, it, it just resonating, you know, type of a thing. It's like, whoa. And you kind of want to put your arms in, you know, it's not like you don't want to give them any bait hanging out there, but you're realizing they're right there. They're six feet from the vehicle and they could just leap up and take you out. And the guy says, and he's, as we're driving there, yeah, these, these lions, he says, yeah, don't worry about them. And we're like, well, why not? And he says, well, we don't feed them in trucks like this. And he uh, said, okay, is that good? He says, yeah, that's good. Because we always come out on a bright yellow kind of, uh, uh, you know, a little short Jeep type thing. And, uh, and then we feed them. We say, what do you feed them? We feed them horses. Oh, um, they like horses. Yeah, he says, big stuff, you know, like impalas and deer and stuff are too little. So they need horses and cattle. Cattle are kind of too soft for them. They like horses and buffalo. Okay, good, good, good. I'm glad you don't feed them in cars like this. And um, <clears throat> so we're sitting there and then we stop and he starts telling us about lions. He says, you know, you ever get, get face to face with a lion? He says, you need to face them. He says, you run, you're dead. No one has ever run away from a lion and survived that he says I have ever heard of. And why is that? He says, because they're the king of the beast. And he says, when you run, they think lunch. But he says, no animal ever stands face to face with a lion. No animal will ever do that. So he says, if you ever get in a place and there's a lion there, you walk towards them, even though you're scared to death. And, um, and he says, and they actually back down because they're not used to anything being not scared of them. And uh, even at one point, a couple of the lions were circling around to the back of the rig, and he actually got out, and there were six lions there, and he just like, and this guy was little. I mean, he was about five foot four and probably weighed, you know, 140 pounds. I just thought, oh, great, I'm going to have to drive the rig back through the fence. And, you know, anyways, he got out and uh, kind of shoot him away from the rig, and uh, you're just thinking, whoa. Later, when we went into this one fenced-in area where some of the ornery lions were, it was about six foot wide. There's kind of a gravel pathway with these fences on both sides with electric wires. And he says, yeah, one of the neat things to do here, he says, is, is, you know, we always come in here in groups. But he says, if there's a brave little kid, he says, and uh, I say, you want to do something scary? And the little kid will say, yeah. I said, just run to the end of the path. And he says, as soon as the lions see the little one depart from the herd, they rush the fence and slam into it. And he says, it's pretty fun to watch. It's like, yeah, fun for your kid. But there they are. That's what Satan does. He catches us in his lies and his deceptions. He feeds us like those lions are fed until pretty soon they're trained by the pleasures and lusts of this world. And pretty soon they end up doing what the master wants them to do. And that's what people are like. They're held captive by Satan to do his will, not God's will. So Satan and his demons are working to keep people from Christ. Secondly, evil men hinder other people from coming to Christ. If we've just learned, Satan is working in the sons of disobedience. They are called the sons of disobedience because that is what characterizes their life. Sin 
is their master. Satan is their master, their Lord, their God is their appetite. Evil men make up the second great external barrier which keep people from coming to Christ. You know, there's lots of examples of this in the New Testament. I'm just going to read a couple texts from Acts. Now, listen to this. This is the early church. Paul, the apostle, who's, you know, one of the greatest evangelists who ever lived, if not the greatest evangelist, is out doing ministry. And this is what it says in Acts 13:45. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. So Paul is preaching, and then these people who are angry, these people who are unbelievers, are being used by Satan to oppose Paul so that he doesn't preach the gospel which people need in order to be saved. Later in verse 50 of Acts 13, we read, But the Jews incited devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. Here we see some unbelievers inciting other unbelievers to oppose Paul so they drive him out so people can't hear the gospel. In Acts chapter 14 verse 2 we read, But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Here we have people who are instigating a riot against the believers. They are being used by Satan to oppose the gospel. And then in verse 19 of chapter 14, it says, The Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. And here, the the Jews not only were opposing Paul and Barnabas, they actually followed him to the next city, created a riot, they stoned Paul and drug him outside the city thinking he was dead. Now, just think about this. What if you knew every time you shared the gospel that you were going to be stoned. That would put a damper on things, wouldn't it? You would you would really think. I mean, it's hard enough to share the gospel with somebody who's smiling behind the counter. But to share the gospel knowing that they're after you, that they want to kill you, that is a whole other thing. And so Satan tries to use men, he does use men, to put fear into those who know Christ and to put fear into those who are interested in knowing Christ so that that doesn't occur. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians 11. Here's another example. These are the men who are opposing Paul's ministry at Corinth when he was away. And notice how Paul describes them. These are being, these are men, evil men who are being used by Satan to oppose the apostle Paul. He says, starting in verse 13 of 2 Corinthians 11, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, It is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness whose end will be according to their deeds. Here, Paul makes it clear that Satan raises up false apostles, false teachers, deceivers, those who say they're righteous but in fact are wicked to infiltrate the church so to teach error to those who are seeking Christ so that the truth does not get to them. You just think of a chessboard, and you think of chess pieces, moving chess pieces around. You know, the chess pieces, they don't know what's going on. They're not alive. And so people who don't know Christ are spiritually dead. And Satan just moves them around on the board of his game and uses them for his own means. And they don't even know it. Turn to one other text. This is First Thessalonians chapter 2. 
And here, Paul is describing how evil men have hindered the gospel um, ministry among the Thessalonians as he tried to preach to them so they could be saved. And he says this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins, wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. And here he just says, these Gentiles are opposing you just like the Jews opposed us. And then he makes some scary statements. Anybody who tries to hinder anybody else from hindering the gospel, who hinders the proclamation of the truth of the gospel, wrath, the wrath of God will come upon that person to the utmost. The whole point is this. There are evil men out there who are pawns of Satan and those evil men are being used by Satan to keep those who don't know Christ from coming to Christ and to keep those who are preaching Christ from preaching Christ. Thirdly, the third external barrier. And that is the world, its lusts and its temptations keep people from coming to Christ. Do you ever wonder why? You know, an alcoholic or a drug addict just keeps drinking themselves sick and taking drugs, though it's, you know, frying their brain and ruining their liver. You ever wonder about that? It's like, man, what is wrong with you? Stop it. Why do they keep going back time and time again? Why don't they stop? You know, the world calls it a disease, an addiction. The Bible calls it slavery to sin and Satan. That is the biblical term. Let's say you came over to my house and, you know, we're going to build a little shed behind the garage or something. And we're, we're pounding some nails and all of a sudden you whack your thumb. Ow, does that hurt or what? I've done that multiple times. And the worst time I ever did it, I was actually building a wall and we were lining up the studs and I was pounding the nails to the top plate and I started a nail and I was down there and I was getting ready. I was really laying into the nail And there was a guy at the other end who thought he'd shift the top plate over. So he hit the end of it right when I was coming down. And, oh, man, I whacked my thumb. And it just was instantly blue and blood shot out. I was like, oh, you know, now that hurts. And my first thought is I never want that to happen again. (laughs) Okay, now what if you came over to my house and you whacked your thumb? And then you said, you know what? I think I'll hit it again. Something would be wrong with you. It's like, what? Yeah, not only am I going to hit my thumb, I think I'll whack my wrist and my elbow and my head. Why would you ever do that? Why would you beat yourself up with a hammer? Well, why do people smoke cigarettes when it says right on the package? It's going to kill you. You ever wonder about that? You know, is that a mystery? It's like one of the number one leading causes of death in the world. Why do people take drugs when they know that this is going to be hazardous to them? Why do people indulge in sins though they know it will kill them? It's because they're enslaved 
Turn to Romans. Romans chapter 16. And verse 18. This is the very end of the book of Romans. Paul is right now getting ready to just discuss a little bit why these false teachers do what they do. And he says this in verse 18. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Notice what, what is their Lord. What they're enslaved to, their own appetites, their own desire for pleasure, to have their lust fulfilled. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians three eighteen and 19. This is very similar. He says, For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you, even weeping, that they're enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Who is their God? Their appetite for pleasure. You know, the reason people don't hit their thumbs multiple times on purpose is because there's no pleasure. But I'm telling you this, if there, if you could hit your thumb and there would be this great pleasurable sensation before it started hurting and throbbing, there'd be a lot of people who would beat their thumbs completely off. You know it. They would do it just to get that pleasure. And you say, well, why do they do that? Because they're slaves of sin. Their God is their appetite, their lust for pleasure. They want pleasure so bad they're willing to die to get it. And to some it's drugs, and other it's sex, and other it's food, and other it's alcohol. You know, whatever it is. People who don't know God cannot break away from that. And, you know, they may even say, well, I'm not taking drugs anymore. And then they just suck into something else. They're out of control. They're slaves. No different unbelievers are slaves to different worldly lusts. They're all enslaved to some lust. Money is a huge one. Money is a huge one. People destroy themselves for money. Paul speaks of this in 1 Timothy 6.10 where he says, For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. He, he pictures those who love money as like leaping off of a building onto a big bed of iron spikes and just impaling themselves. You're thinking, ooh. I mean, we've all seen it before. You see it in the paper, you know, some little cute starlet you know shows up she gets her first gig she's really popular everybody likes her she's in the movies she's singing whatever and then what happens well they give her another gig and she makes more money and then pretty soon all the entertainment moguls look at her like a cash box and they say to themselves you know what let's get her to do this if she'll just do this and compromise a little bit here we'll give her a little more money And so then she compromises her morals and her lust for her own riches, her own fame, her own glory, drive her on as they try to drive her on. And pretty soon you read about her immorality and her promiscuity and her recent trips to the drug rehabilitation center and her multiple divorces. And she has everything she's ever wanted and it's killing her and she wants more. Is that insane? That is insane. And yet people don't even know what's happening. It's what they want. And Paul says to Timothy, they have wandered away from the faith, which means some of them are in the church. 
Some of them are religious for a time. Maybe they go to Bible studies. Maybe they, you know, hang about and, and uh, hang around Christians and come to church and read their Bible. Maybe they even serve in a ministry for a time and then they wander away from the faith. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9-10, through 10, Paul is rotting in prison. He's right before his execution. He writes to Timothy and he says, Make every effort to come to me soon. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Here the apostle Paul is in prison. And when you read the New Testament, he took Demas with him. He discipled him. He handpicked him. He taught him the truth. He modeled the truth. He suffered for the gospel in front of Demas. And when he needed Demas the most, Demas said, listen, I want pleasure. I'm out of here. And walked away from the apostle Paul. The world held out its golden bait and said, do you want it? And Demas said, yeah. The world with all of its pleasures and riches and temptations is the third great barrier outside of every unbeliever that keeps them from coming to Christ. Now I want you to turn to one more text. We've looked at this a couple years back. Luke 8. You remember that? Can you remember that long ago? Luke chapter 8. I want to show you, because this is just marvelous here, it's amazing how when you study the scriptures, how Jesus' teaching is so incredible. But in Luke 8, 5 through 8, is the parable of the soils. We don't have time to go into it in any detail, but if you remember, some seed was sown among the road, right? Some was sown among the rocks, and some was sown among the thorny weeds, the bushes or whatever, the weeds that grew up around it, and then some was sown among the good soil. Now... Right after Jesus gives the parable, the disciples ask him for help in understanding it. And starting in Luke chapter 8, verses 10 and following, Jesus says, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Sounds like Luke 10, right? Exactly like to Luke 10. It's almost like God is sovereign in salvation. To you it has been granted, he says, to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. It sounds very similar to the text we just read in 2 Timothy 2, that God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. God has to grant it. Then Jesus interprets the parable. Then Luke chapter 8, verse 11 and 12 says this. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. So you, you sow the word of God. You preach the gospel. Those besides the road are those who have heard. And then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they will not believe and be saved. Did you see that? That's the first barrier we looked at, didn't it? Satan and demons working to keep men from coming to Christ. And Jesus has it right there. The first example, seed sown among the roads. Look at verse 13. Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. These have no firm root, for they believe for a while, and in a time of temptation fall away. Now Matthew's gospel says, it is because of the temptation to fear men, it is because of affliction and persecution which arise because of the word or the gospel that they go, uh, and they fall away from Christ. And so the temptation here is the temptation to fall away because of the persecution of evil men. That's the second barrier we saw. Evil men. Keep people from coming to Christ. Finally, look at verse 14. 
The seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked with the worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. And this is the third barrier, the world with its pleasures, its lusts, its temptations. Jesus includes all three external barriers which are outside of people, which hinder them from coming to Christ. Now get this in your mind. What hope is there for an unbeliever to ever come to Christ if they're totally depraved? If they're corrupted in every part of their being? If their heart is desperately sick and deceitful above all else? If their consciences are defiled? If their reasoning is twisted? If they don't come to the light because they love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil? If they are spiritually dead and they can't even understand the gospel if they heard it because they can't understand the things of God? And not only that, Satan and demons are working to keep them blinded in the truth. And not only that, you have evil men, which are Satan's pawns, which are keeping them from coming to know the truth by both persecuting those who are preaching the gospel and hindering those who want to hear the gospel. And not only that, you have the world with all its pleasures and temptations and sins, baiting them, drawing them away from the truth so that they don't want to come to Christ. The fact is, it's like... People who don't know Christ are buried doubly deep. They're in a concrete vault. They're in a bronze welded casket. And Satan and demons and evil men are standing on the gravesite ready to fight anybody who tries to come close. How in the world is that person going to be dug up, a hole jackhammered in that vault, the, the coffin whipped up out of there, a torch to cut the lid off of it so light can get to that corpse? How does that ever happen? How can anyone ever be saved? You come next week, you find out. <laughs> because that's what we're going to find out next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for just being able to go slow through the doctrine of salvation to see what a desperately fretful and serious condition unbelievers are in. We've all been there at one time. Maybe some here are still there. They don't know Christ. They don't love Christ. They aren't living for you. They're blinded from the truth. They're held captive by Satan to do his will and they don't even know it. Father, I pray right now by your grace, you would open up their hearts to the truth that you would just make the scales fall from their eyes, that they would see that they are sinners and they have sinned against a holy God and they deserve to be judged because of it. And may they look beyond that to Christ who out of love died on the cross, bore the sins of the world, was buried and rose again on the third day. And may they realize that through faith in him, they can receive the free gift of eternal life. Father, may they do that now. For the rest of us, as we leave here today, may we remember just how desperate a situation it is when someone doesn't know you and how hopeless and helpless people are if it were not for your grace. And Father, may we return next week to find out the beginning of how you save those who are really beyond saving. And Father, we want to give you all the glory for what we've learned and what we're going to learn in Christ's name. Amen.